As you know, there were two young men that hung around Paul the Apostle. There were more, but two principally that were sent out, sort of like protégés. They were like intern pastors, and they were sent to different parts of the ancient world. One was named Timothy. He was sent to an urban metropolitan city called Ephesus, where he was called to do much the same that Titus was called to do. He was the other young man that was sent to sort of a rural place, very different from Ephesus, the island of Crete. That island also had a growing fellowship. Christians were planted on that area because Paul the Apostle had been there. Both of them went for the same reason because the same need persisted. Leaders, godly leadership. It was imperative because as God's sheep, we need shepherds. Now we need authoritative shepherds. That doesn't mean authoritarian shepherds as we're going to read tonight, but those that speak the truth, God's authority, not just a bunch of opinions or a bunch of... um, activities that we can plan, but truth in an authoritative way. Remember that Jesus looked over the multitudes at the Sea of Galilee. And his response was probably very different from what most church leaders' responses would be. You know, most church leaders would see that many people coming and they go, can you believe how many people we have today? Look at all the people. I mean, even the... the other hill on the Sea of Galilee, that's flooded and they have to, you know, put their ears out into the wind just to hear what we're saying. This is awesome. Let's get a count. But instead, Jesus saw that multitude and his heart started breaking. He saw them as sheep that had no shepherd, weary and scattered. And it says he had compassion on them. The New American Standard Version says when Jesus saw that they were downcast, and distressed. It was an inner condition of the heart. It was a spiritual depression, sort of, because there were no real shepherds to give them direction. The Weist translation of the New Testament, a very literal, kind of a drawn-out Greek translation, translates that verse in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10. They were exhausted by their troubles. Their long and aimless wanderings And they had thrown themselves to the ground in an utterly prostrate condition as sheep not having a shepherd. Now that's a metaphoric language. That's a a word picture to describe an inner condition of helplessness because there was lack of direction, because there was lack of leadership. Now they had scribes and Pharisees. They had leaders. And these scribes and Pharisees claimed to be their leaders. But it was actually their leadership that caused such a confused state. As Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You bind heavy burdens that men are unable to bear. You can't carry them yourself, and yet you demand that others carry them. They caused the problem. These false shepherds didn't give any spiritual pasture. These false shepherds didn't feed the sheep. They were out to fleece them. Now, the same problem happened in the Old Testament. In fact, every time God does a work and there are genuine, loving people and leaders, you have counterfeit, you have false. And in the Old Testament, as God was raising up prophets and shepherds, 
there were a group of false shepherds of whom God says, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who only take care of themselves. Should not the shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, you clothe yourselves with the wool, and you slaughter the choice animals. But you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. What a contrast to Jesus, who said, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. I'll tell you, when people heard him speak, they flocked to him because he was a true shepherd. Out to feed them, out to minister to them, unlike these false shepherds that had come before his time in Israel. Now the question remains, and this is the question we deal with tonight in chapter 1, verses 7, 8, and 9. Who is qualified for such an office? Who is qualified to be a leader? Now tonight we're going to talk principally about what the text speaks about, church leadership. But let's expand it. Because today we need godly leaders in every realm, don't we? Wouldn't you love to see godly leaders in politics? Well, keep praying for them and get involved. Wouldn't you love to see godly leaders in the home? Godly men who lead their wives and children in the ways of God, as well as godly church leaders. And God looks for such. All throughout the Old Testament is the clarion cry of the Father to the prophet Isaiah, or at least in his hearing, we hear God saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? It was the prophet Samuel who came to King Saul and said, God has rejected you, Saul, and God has looked for a man after his own heart that he could set over Israel. Now, I mentioned, I think, in one of the times we met before that a survey was taken by the National Association of Theological Schools, and they polled churches and asked them, what kind of a pastor do you want? What are the big qualities of leadership that you want? What's most important to you? Number one was not that he speaks geek, I mean Greek, but that he is humble. Humility was number one. Number two, honesty was the second trait that they rated as the most important, humility and honesty. Third on the list, good example in daily living. Fourth and last on the list were ministry capabilities such as being a good preacher and teacher. In other words, what people wanted, moreover, what God is interested in is character traits. Now, keeping that in mind, let's read our text. Chapter 1, verse 5. For this reason, I left you in Crete that you should set in order, that's a medical term, to fix a broken bone, a limb. Set in order things that are lacking and appoint elders. Remember the word presbyteros, those who would be the rulers over the flock, at least I should say under the flock. In every city as I commanded you, if a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination, that's the qualifications of his home life. We covered that last time. Now let's look at verse 7, 8, and 9. That's what we're going to dwell on tonight. These are the qualifications of the man of God, the leader, the church leader, the pastor, in church life, not family life only, but in church life now. 
For a bishop must be blameless, same word, as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. Now, we know a basic truth when it comes to leadership, when it comes to any value. The values of heaven are very different from the values of earth, right? It was Jesus who said, that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination to God. The things that people think are so important, often God says, not a big deal. And the things that people often pass over, God would put number one in His priority list. For example, classic example from the Scripture, it was the prophet Samuel, who after rebuking King Saul, is going out in the name of the Lord to find another king. And he goes to the household of Jesse. And he lines up all the boys. And he goes up to each one and he looks over and he wonders, is this the king of Israel? Is this the guy? And he comes to the first son of David a tall, strapping guy named Eliab. And he looks at him and he goes, gosh, you know, this guy's good-looking, this guy's built, look at those muscles. This is king material, definitely king material. And he says in his heart, surely this is the one who will stand before God. And God speaks to his heart. And he says, Samuel, don't look at his appearance nor the height of his stature, I've rejected him. For God does not see as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. God is concerned with the heart, the characteristics of a person, man or woman, who would pursue his God. The values are very, very different. I may have shared this with you before, but I was handed this, and as I was handed it and I read it over, it cracked me up because I thought, you know, this is very true. I was given a piece of paper that would have been a report by a church committee had they interviewed some of the heroes of the Bible. Now, I don't know what your experience is in many churches, but many churches have pulpit committees and they search for the perfect pastor and they often search for a person that is non-existent. Many times, like, wives search for men and men search for wives that are non-existent. You know, he's supposed to leap over tall buildings with a single bound or she's supposed to look like this and this and it's the perfect person. Of course, they seldom answer the question, if there was somebody that perfect, would she really want to marry you? you know, they don't think about that. But <laughs> If a church were to interview some of the people in the Bible, they would have written back, the committee regrets to report that the candidates in question have failed to meet our qualifications. Number one, Noah. Though he's preached 120 years, that's a lot of experience, he's had no converts. This indicates a credibility gap. Then there's Abram slash Abraham. Remember, he was called both. We find it odd that he has two names. Is he using an alias? And if so, how come? Also, we must question whether he's the head of his own household. His wife laughs when he talks to God. Then there's Moses, third on the list. We were impressed with Moses, except for two severe problems. 
He's been known to lose his temper once in a while. Furthermore, while he seems to have the necessary perseverance for preaching, his stuttering and stammering would defile speech therapy. Four, David seems talented in writing music and poetry, but we don't know if he can preach. Worse yet, he's had a few moral lapses. We couldn't have him as a pastor, but perhaps later he could be considered for a position as minister of music. Isaiah. Now, there's a person who's well thought of, but he seems to be a serious PR problem. Imagine a preacher who, upon meeting God, instead of addressing him politely, says, Woe is me! If Isaiah greeted people in the church that way, no one would ever feel welcome. (laughs) Jeremiah. Now, we need an upbeat preacher for our church, one who can make people feel happy. We feel unanimously that Jeremiah would be too depressing in any church position. John the Baptist. Well, certainly he's a good preacher, gets good results, but he dresses odd. Worse than that, his lack of pulpit decorum. He eats very strangely. What if he brought a honey-dipped insect casserole to one of our potlucks? (laughs) Peter. Peter seems to show leadership, but the last thing we need is a preacher who carries a sword everywhere takes off and goes fishing at the drop of a hat and smells like fish most of the time. Then there's Paul. We've considered Paul. He's a great preacher. He's very moving. That is, he's always moving here and moving there. How could he keep his mind on our ministry when he always wants to be somewhere else? And so these men were rejected. Now, as we said, verse 6 describes the home life of a leader. Verse 7, 8, and 9, the public or church life of a leader And there's a basic principle, back to that illustration, God doesn't always look for the most qualified, but the people that are the most qualified for His grace. That's very, very different. In fact, those who are most qualified for His grace are usually the least likely people to succeed at anything. They're the kind of a person who would say, oh, that that person, who could use that person? God could use that person. Because it's often those people who realize that they're just flesh... And God says, I can use a person who admits that he needs me. I'll pour my spirit in him. So this evening, if we have the time, Lord willing, we're going to look at these first three or verse 7, 8, and 9. And if you're taking notes or for your memory, the minister, the man of God, the elder, must have these qualifications. As a steward, he must be blameless. That's verse 7. As a servant... He must be balanced. That's verse 8. And as a spokesman, he must be believable. That's verse 9. Let's look at verse 7. As a steward, he must be blameless. For a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money. The word steward, you could translate that manager. That's a word we're more familiar with. And in fact, the word literally means the manager of a home, a household manager. In today's economy, what we might say, a small business manager. Somebody who is in charge for someone else. Now, who is the most famous manager of a household that you can think of in the Bible? Joseph, I heard someone say it correct. Give that man a gold star. Joseph, exactly. He managed Potiphar's household. Potiphar, this prime minister figure of Egypt, 
gave to Joseph control of everything in his own household, and he was a faithful steward. In fact, when his wife, Mrs. Potiphar, that lonely housewife who felt so alienated from her husband, tried to grab a hold and seduce Joseph, his response was, Look, all that Potiphar, your husband, has, he has put in my hands. In other words, I have a stewardship to fulfill. I must be faithful. So, a minister, a pastor, and that's what I like about the Bible, no one is exempt from scrutiny, from testing. Right here, the lights are turned not on the people, but on the pastors of this church tonight, or any leadership position at all. And I like that about the Bible. No one's exempt. Many times preachers like to point fingers at people and say, you need this and you need that. Well, in this section, God points the finger at the ministers themselves. And uh, we're stewards. So we can never say, this church is my church. Someone tried that in the Bible. Remember his name? Nebuchadnezzar. He became an animal out in the field because of his pride. We can't say this is my, this is God's church. This is my ministry. You don't have a ministry. Everything that you have has been given to you by God. Everything a minister has has been given by God. He's a steward. John the Baptist reminded us, a man can receive nothing except it is given to him from heaven. Time, talent, gifts are all on loan from God. Now our verse says that this steward must be blameless. And we explained last time that the word blameless means unable to grab a hold of. In other words, he may be accused, but that accusation cannot be proved. It's not sustained. It's the kind of a life where the unbeliever or the devil can't get a hold of something that would bring reproach or disgrace upon the church of Jesus Christ. It's not referring to perfection. But it means basically to have a good reputation, a blameless reputation in the eyes of the church and the unbelieving world. Timothy was a good example of this. He's the other young man that went to Ephesus. While he was out ministering with Paul the Apostle, in Acts chapter 16, it describes Timothy as one who was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. It speaks of a trustworthy person, a person of integrity. A person who says something and then follows through with it. And it was Charles Spurgeon who said, this kind of a person sets a pace. He said basically that you could have your clock and if it's out of sync with the correct time, it's no big deal. But if the Greenwich Observatory in London is out of sync, then all of the clocks and all of the businesses in London will also be out of sync. And he says that's how a minister ought to be, setting the time, setting the pace. Verse 7 also describes his blamelessness in what he's not to be like. In very negative terms, notice the list. A bishop must be blameless. That's the premise. Then the premise is described or qualified by negatives. Not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money. Let's look at the first one. Not self-willed. The NIV, if you have one, says not overbearing. This speaks of someone who arrogantly pushes for his own will and opposes the will of God. He just wants his way no matter what. His way is the best way. This kind of a person feels it necessary to pull rank. Well, I'm in charge here. And you want to make known to everybody that you are in charge. To intimidate them. But you never see Paul the Apostle that way. 
You never see Paul walk by and say, Salute me, I am an apostle. He came often as the servant of God for their sakes. And he encourages Titus to raise up such as that. Now, we need authority. I think that's very obvious as we look at the state of our nation today. Don't you think that? We have basically thrown out authority and we are a pure existential nation. Everyone does what is right in his own eyes. Israel tried that. It says there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We need authority. But we don't need authoritarian authority. We don't need, especially in the church, a bunch of little despots running around barking out orders as if they're the only spokesmen that hear from God. And there are people who are so insecure in their position that they'll say, no, don't argue with me. I got a message from God about this. I'm God's spokesman. And if you argue with me, you're arguing with God. I just, that bothers me. Because I figure it this way. God has my phone number as well. Not just some preacher's phone number or some bishop's phone number or any one particular individual. God can speak to you what He wants for your life and guide and direct your life as well. So, Paul is speaking about someone overbearing who would abuse authority. Diotrephes was a perfect example of what not to be. He's spoken about in the book of Third John, a very small epistle written by John, the apostle of Jesus Christ. It is described of him as such, Diotrephes, the one who loved to have the preeminence. Now there you have a description of an overbearing minister. He wants to have the preeminence. He wants to be in charge. He wants everybody to look only up to that person and no one else. Second on the list, not quick-tempered. Not quick-tempered. Now, it's one thing to be angry at sin, but I think a lot of people use the righteous indignation excuse for just having a bad temper. They're just mad people. And you say, how come you're always mad? Well, it's righteous indignation. Be careful that you separate getting mad at things and being angry at people. The Bible says in Proverbs 14, verse 17, a quick-tempered man acts foolishly. Now, you've had that experience. I've had that experience because I've said some things that if I could take them back, as soon as I've said them, I'd try to like reach out. I just would love to take it back and swallow it, but it's over. There's a woman who went up to Billy Sunday, the great evangelist, many years ago, and she was trying to qualify her temper, had an excuse for it. And she said, yes, I have a bad temper, but it's over in a minute. No big deal. Billy Sunday reported by saying, so is a shotgun blast, but look at the damage it can do in just a split second. Have you noticed that just a short word or two or three or a short sentence can destroy the whole evening and sometimes be on the way to destroy an entire relationship? And so it's incumbent upon a leader to be balanced in temper, Paul writes to Timothy, the other young man in 2 Timothy 2, that the servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but he must be gentle to all. Now you might want to make a little experiment sometime. Just for fun, turn to a Christian television station, and when the preacher's on TV, turn the button on mute and watch. 
and see what kind of language, body language comes off. If he makes you feel warmed and loved by his actions or if it's... <laughs> it's amazing what no sound can do. Just watching the finger pointing and the actions, the body language of the individuals. Well, let's go on before I get in trouble. It says, not given to wine. Now, this is a qualification for a pastor, an elder, a bishop. But it's not limited. It also speaks in Timothy, that other young man, his letter that Paul wrote to him, concerning deacons, those who serve the church in the capacity of even menial tasks, that they should not be given to much wine. And the word, this phrase, speaks of somebody who sits long with a cup of wine muses over it, and basically turns into a drunk. Now you can see, obviously, a person like that would not be qualified in church leadership. Now, in the New Testament, wine was very common. It was cultural, first of all, in that part of the world to have wine with almost every meal. Secondly, wine was medicinal. Sometimes people took it for ailments, as Paul told young Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach, your often infirmity's sake. It was used for medicine. It was used to help. So he commanded Timothy to drink wine for the right reason. It was also for sanitary purposes. Back then, as in many parts of the world today, the water is horrible. And if you drank it without killing the germs, you would be infected. And so they would take a diluted wine and pour it oftentimes in vats of water, and that little bit of alcohol would be enough to kill the germs, and almost all the water was laced with some form of wine. In Germany today, if you were to go to Germany, Austria, other parts of Europe, Americans would find it odd, but they certainly wouldn't find it odd to, after a Sunday service, the pastors to meet at the local bar and discuss the Lord's work. Now, those are cultural differences. In this country, it's seen as very marginal. So when it comes to wine or alcohol, the man of God, the leader, should not be one who is known as being associated at all with alcohol. I think simply in terms of setting a good example, you could see what a bad example it would be to go to the local bar and there's your pastor drinking a brewski. Slamming down a few Bud Lights. You, most people would stumble at that. A weaker brother would say, oh, if he can do it, I could do it. But the idea here is being a drunkard. And what a bad example that would be, again, to see a, a, a leader. A praise the Lord. All right. Next on the list, not violent. Not violent. Now again, you read something like this, as do I, and you think, not violent, this is obvious. However, I've seen writings from the early church that talk about some of the early church bishops that would actually go against, they were overzealous, and they would chastise erring Christians by physical violence. And so, the apostolic canon records a little section in it that says, quote, We order that the bishop who strikes an erring believer should be deposed. They had to write that because there were guys who would walk around and smack erring brothers and sisters. Well, hopefully it was just brothers. It was still bad enough. Pelagius even wrote, by the way, Pelagius later went on to be a heretic, but he said even, he cannot strike anyone who is the disciple of that Christ who being struck returned no answering blow. Not violent. 
However, the Greek word here came to mean not just somebody who smacks with the fist, but it described speech of a person, violent speech, one who browbeats his fellow man. One who browbeats, and I think it could be translated that way accurately here, one who browbeats his fellow man. It's a person who abandons grace, abandons love. Every part of his speech is one continual polemic in a violent manner against other people. One who is a striker in speech. Charles Spurgeon told his young pastor's group in London, England, Don't go around the world with your fists doubled up for fighting, carrying a theological revolver in the leg of your trousers. Good advice. Don't go around and feel like you've got the gospel gun and you've got to go blow people's theological brains out because you've got the answer. Now oftentimes, really, oftentimes this mindset comes upon believers who grow intellectually without growing spiritually. They gain all sorts of biblical knowledge, theological knowledge. They go to Bible schools and seminaries, and there's nothing wrong with them. But if they grow only intellectually without growing spiritually, they can become lopsided. And they feel like they're God's gift, and they just owe it to everybody to tell them what's right. After all, they know it's absolutely right and absolutely wrong about absolutely everything, and they want to tell absolutely everybody that. And they can become violent in speech. James and John, I think, kind of had that mindset. They'd follow Jesus. He was the true Messiah. There weren't many people that got that close to him. And so after a while in their ministry, when people didn't receive them, instead of loving them, they suggested one time to the Samaritans, Lord, how about if we just call fire down from heaven and smoke them? Remember that? They wouldn't receive Jesus. They wanted to post-toasty the Samaritans. What was Jesus' response? He said, you don't even know what manner of spirit you are. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy lives, but to what? Save lives. They wanted to destroy. Jesus wanted to save. Next on the list, he should not be greedy for money. That is, a person whose sole purpose is to fleece the flock in any capacity. He sees it solely as an income source. Now, interestingly enough... Paul writes this to Titus, and he writes this to Timothy. Titus went to Crete. William Barclay tells us that there was a particular problem, culturally, among the Cretans. They were highly materialistic. They were unscrupulous in business dealings, and they would get money any way they could get it. In fact, William Barclay, in a little article, said... They are so given to making making gain in disgraceful and acquisitive ways that among the Cretans alone of all men no gain is counted disgraceful. Plutarch said that they stuck to money like bees to honey. The Cretans counted material gain far above honesty and honor. They did not care how much their money cost them, but the Christian knows that there are some things which cost too much. The man whose only aim in life is to amass material things, irrespective of how he does so, is not fit to be an office bearer in the Christian church. That seems to be what he's speaking about. Those who, like the Cretans in their culture, would say, Oh, yeah, well, there's a lot of people around, huh, if you're in the ministry. Oh, what could that mean to me? And so not seeing it simply as an income source to fleece the sheep. Now, there's nothing wrong with paying staffs, of pastors 
lay workers or people who work in tape ministries or other ministries around the country and around the world. In fact, it is biblical to do so. Paul several times mentioned that. In 1 Corinthians 9, he said, If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? A couple verses later, he said, The Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. And to Timothy, speaking about eldership, he said, Let the elders who rule be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. But there would be those, and there were those false prophets who would see something and they weren't called of God, but they would come simply for financial gain. In fact, look a couple verses in our own text later. Verse 11, speaking of the false prophets. Whose mouths must be stopped? Who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain? These are the kind of people who will say anything that it takes to make the other person feel incumbent to give to them. Now, when I read verses like that and others, I don't see much difference between that and some of the things that I've collected over the years. And uh, without going into names, though I probably should, if they were still around to minister, I'm glad they're not. But uh, one is a letter, and it's dear... And in this case, Jeremy, a friend of mine, gave this to me. But I have seen this same letter given to other people with their name on it. It's a computer letter. Now, it's going to sound very personal, but it's not. Dear, whatever your name is, you can insert your name in this one. As I was praying for you, all of a sudden, I sensed the presence of God. It was as if God himself was standing right here beside me. I felt so burdened for you. And your needs. I was praying that God would give you a miracle home. I said, oh God, how can I reach out and touch my partner? Then, like a flash, it came to me that I can reach out to you through this holy anointing oil that I've sent to you. I believe that God can touch you in five ways. Then, it was as if we had an old-fashioned camp meeting and you were right there with me. I sang songs and praised the Lord and rejoiced because of what God was going to do for you and your home when you obey Him. Now, it's a personal-sounding letter, and if I guess you'd have to be real dweeby to actually be this gullible to believe it, but there's people who do, wow, it's a personal letter. This guy was actually thinking about me in his living room and praying for me, and he saw a vision. And here's the five ways. I know that my prayers for you are heard. He showed me five ways he wants to bless you. Number one, financially. Two, physically. Three, spiritually. Four, with peace, love, joy in your home. I would put that under three, but he didn't. Number five, your loved ones. Now, you can have these blessings from God if you want them. God is impressed on my heart to send you this anointing oil to help you receive these blessings. You know, not long ago, I sent you a little bag of cinnamon so that you could anoint your home like Moses did. Moses anointed with cinnamon and oil. Now here's the plan that God has given me for you to receive the five blessings He has for you. And He's got a sweet little picture of what to do. Anoint your door, open a little of the container of the anointing oil and put a drop or two on your finger and anoint your front door. Number two, anoint the five blessings. Anoint each of the five blessings written on the drawing and then place your right hand on top of the drawing and pray this prayer. And He has a little prayer. And number three, uh, now give God your best Offering, rush this blessing sheet back to me with the offering. 
So I can anoint my hand with the oil and place it over the drawing and pray and believe God to bless you these five ways. And then you can check off if you want to give $20, $50, or hopefully even more. Uh, the list goes on. Uh, one comes and says, God has spoken to my heart. This is from a different source. God has spoken to my heart with a clear message of faith, hope, courage, and action. It's a word for you today. It's time to kill the giants of your life in the realm of faith so that you may see them fall in the realm of the natural. Take the enclosed giant miracle prayer request sheet. (laughs) Who writes these things? There's like a staff of people that make these things up. And write down the giants of your life. I want to take aim with my faith and anoint to pray for your giant killing victory. And... uh, It says here that uh, take your right hand, place your right hand over the small, smooth stone in the picture. And, you know, it's the same kind of chicanery that we read in the first one. And send him an offering and God will give you whatever you need. This stuff happens all the time in the name of Jesus Christ. It's tragic. So the motivations of character must be pure. As a steward of God, he must be blameless. Now, look at verse 8. As a steward, he must be blameless. But then, as a servant, he must be balanced. Verse 8 is a beautiful verse of Scripture. On the positive side, it says, But he ought to be hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled. A lover of what is good, some translate. A lover of good men. Let me read that to you in the Amplified Version. He must be hospitable, loving, and a friend to believers, especially to the strangers and the foreigners. He must be a lover of goodness, of good people and good things. Sober-minded, that is sensible and discreet, upright and fair-minded, a devout man, religiously right, temperate, and keeping himself at hand. It's describing a balanced individual who loves people, who loves the stranger, who loves good friends, has good company, and lives a balanced life among his peers as well as the rest of the body of Christ. Now, keeping that in mind, turn with me back left over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let's look at a couple of verses from Paul the Apostle in his own ministry at a young church. Paul the Apostle In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 5. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, that we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. And when you think of a mother, he's using a feminine metaphor for himself in the ministry. Isn't that interesting? Those of you who think of Paul as some macho, isolated kind of a person, you're wrong. He said, I treated you as a mom. Now, I don't know about your home, but in my, ma- in my home, mom is a very tender element. When I grew up, 
Dad was always there to give orders and set direction, but when I wanted warmth and encouragement and cuddles, I'd get it from Mom. And so it is in my house. We both love my son, but when my son really is in a cuddly kind of a mood, he goes to find Mom. Not that I would kick him or push him away, but there's just something tender about Mom, right? Gentle as a mother. And notice it says, as a nursing mother. As a nursing mother. I can't think of any more descript of a word picture than this, speaking of selfless love, than a nursing mother. Because nursing mothers cannot be demanding. Nursing mothers are there when their child cries. Nursing mothers can't say, Would you be quiet? I'm your mother. No, you can't eat right now. You can eat tomorrow. (laughs) Nursing mothers, it's the epitome of selfless love. Gentle as a mother. And then let's go on in the same text. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but our own lives because you had become dear to us. This is the lover of good, the lover of good people. Hospitality. For you remember, verse 9, you remember, brethren, our labor and toil, laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you and preach to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses. And God also, how devoutly, justly, And blamelessly, we behaved ourselves among you who believe, as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his own children. You see the mix of metaphors? On one hand, we were gentle like a mom. On the other hand, we charged you and we exhorted you and we comforted you like a dad. That's the balance that I think is hinted at back in our text in the book of Titus. As a nurturing father. Now, Paul considered himself a spiritual father. To the Corinthians, he said, I have begotten you by the gospel. You came to Christ through my ministry, and so I see you as a spiritual dad to spiritual children, sort of a thing, back to the Corinthians. Here, he uses the word exhort, and he uses the word charge. You know what that means? And you'll relate to this. The word, I charged you like a dad, meant I told you about my own personal experiences. You know, it's very difficult, isn't it, when kids grow up and they're teenagers and their dad comes to them and says, Now, son, let me tell you, when I was a boy, and the kids go, Oh, groan. Right? Because we've heard it before. Oh, we don't want to hear it. It's different now, dad. But that's part of spiritual maturity to hear those who have gone before you, who have walked the road of faith, to charge you, to testify of their own experience because it brings about maturity, to exhort, to encourage. You know, kids can easily become discouraged, can't they? And Christians can easily become downcast. And so I think a balanced ministry is to love the people of God, to love the family of God, to be gentle as a mom, But not all the time. You can't be all gentle, all syrupy. You'll have sentimental disobedience. You need the strong, comforting direction of a father. But you can't have all strong direction of a father because it'll be too harsh and you'll miss the softness. You need the balance of both. And Paul said, I did that among you. Now let's go back to our text. The third thing that we notice in verse 9, and we close with this, is that The leader is to be believable as a spokesman. Believable as a spokesman. 
holding fast, verse 9, the faithful word. What's the faithful word? You're holding it right now in your hands. It's the scripture, the truth. Holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. Deceivers abounded in the church. He mentions that in the next couple of verses. Because of that, a mark of a faithful shepherd is that he's a believable spokesman. He doesn't tout his opinions. He doesn't tout this or that. He touts the Word of God as authoritative because there are people who will contradict. He wrote again to Timothy these words, Preach the Word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. And so, summing it up, the qualifications. This last qualification is given here. He has to be believable as a spokesman because there are people who come who are spokesmen supposedly for God, but they're not speaking the truth. They're false teachers, as he mentions in verse 10, 11, actually several verses after that. I believe that the very primary calling of a pastor is to study the Word of God that he might teach people in the ways of God. Not that he is perfect himself. He learns as he teaches. But that he is like a wife slaving over a hot meal during the day to give a good meal, a balanced meal to the congregation. Here, I've cooked this. I've got enough vegetables. I've got enough meat. I've got enough potatoes and even a little dessert here. Here, go for it. It's well prepared. And I've told you before what Dr. Van Cleve said to me. I took his class years ago in California. He said, if you speak to 100 people and you are unprepared and you speak to them for an hour, you have wasted 100 hours of God's precious time. And so you have to be believable as a spokesman. And I know that in this congregation, God is raising up people to go out and start churches. It's been one of my heart's desires and joys to see people leave this church. Con going up to Santa Fe, having several hundred people. Robert going out to Tucson, having 25, 2,700 people now. It's great to see this happen. It's great to see people go out. Be believable as a spokesman and stick to the Word of God. Forget any gimmicks. Just stick to the truth. Now, I have had people say, well, you know, our community is different. They don't respond to the Bible. And so I've got to do something else to get them in. If you have to do something else to get them in, you don't want them in. You want to attract those who are serious about truth. And believe me, the unbeliever will respond to someone who believes the truth, even if he doesn't believe it at first himself. But if he sees somebody who does, the unbeliever loves to be talked straight to. You don't have to glitz him to get him in. You don't have to make it user-friendly because he can see through all that. Just tell him what you believe. Be honest and forthright and share the gospel. And it doesn't matter how big the congregation becomes. We know people who go out and start churches and they remain small for a long period of time. Somebody went up to Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon had this huge church in England. This man came up to him and says, Charles, Mr. Spurgeon, I don't know what to do. I only have 80 people in my church. Spurgeon said, I think that's enough people to give account for on Judgment Day, wouldn't you say? 80 people's enough. Care for them. Love them. 
In the book of Timothy, chapter 3, the qualification for the elder, it's not mentioned here, but it's implied in this verse, he's to be able to teach, a gift of teaching, apt to teach, which means he must be a student of the Word of God. Student of the Word of God. Let me close by telling you what Martin Luther once wrote. He said, he talked about the necessity of having a balanced teaching ministry, loving people but sharing the truth because there's people who are false prophets. And he said, even if I preach correctly and shepherd the flock of God with sound doctrine, I neglect my duty if I do not warn the sheep against wolves. What kind of a builder would I be if I were to pile up masonry and stand up while others tear it down? The wolf does not object to our leading the sheep to good pastures. The sheep have been fattened and are more eagerly sought by him. When he cannot tolerate, what he cannot tolerate is that the watchdogs stand on guard ready to give him battle. Now every now and then you might see one of the ushers or one of the pastors questioning people in the back or ushering people out the door. We don't have to do it, thank God, often, but we have done it. To people who have come in and they see a large church, they see a full parking lot, and they think, oh, dollar signs or converts. And they won't go to the streets to the unbeliever. They want to come here because you're easy prey. They think until they talk to you and they find out these people carry their Bibles. These people know the Bible. Uh Uh-oh. And we can spot them and we ask them to leave. Finally, Martin Luther said, a preacher must be both a good soldier and a good shepherd. He must nourish, defend, and teach. He must have teeth in his mouth and be able to bite and to fight. So that's the balance. As a steward, blameless. As a servant, balanced. And as a spokesman, believable. Let's pray. Father, it's our great joy to have such a wonderful shepherd as Jesus Christ, such a wonderful God to serve, not gods of wood, iron, stone, the true and the living God, the one and the only God, the good shepherd. And Lord, we're so grateful that every time you see Christian people without godly leadership, that you have compassion upon us. You see us in our weary and scattered situation and how you long to raise up godly leadership. I pray that you do that, Lord. I pray for every church across this nation that you'd raise up the standard of godly leadership among pastors. I pray that you'd raise up strong teachers in the churches, those to teach men and women. Father, I pray that you'd raise up godly leadership in the political realm, in the educational realm, Our children need such good role models among coaches and teachers, and we thank you for the good ones that are out there. We praise you to raise up more. We pray, Father, for godly leadership in families, that you raise up men to love wives, love kids, to be around, to serve it as an instructor and a servant. We thank you for your fine example, and we thank you for the word of truth. And now, Lord, we offer this song to you as a token of love, just to tell you that We're glad to be your kids. In Jesus' name, amen.